Hi there, and welcome to the first episode of the new year. I'm Father Roderick, and in this show, I will give you my review of the Netflix series about The Witcher. I'll also share with you a number of tips that allow me to read one book per week for the rest of the year. This episode is brought to you thanks to my patrons over at patreon.com slash fatherroderick. Thanks to their financial support, not only can I bring you these podcasts advertisement-free, but I can also uh, deploy my creativity on, on social media and on YouTube. I've created three YouTube channels at the beginning of this year, and I wouldn't be able to create so much content unless I had the support of my patrons. And I've come to a, a threshold moment when it comes to this uh, support through Patreon. I had set a goal that if I would reach uh, $2,000 in donations per month, I would be able to spend time to produce a, a documentary in English every month of 2020. And I'm happy to say, well, we're almost there. I'm just waiting for you to actually become a patron. But I, we're, we're almost at that threshold so that I can actually set apart time to, uh, to focus on the production of these documentaries. And in order to bring you these documentaries, I've created this new YouTube channel that is called Father Roderick Stories. So go and subscribe to that. And if you want to help me with the production of these documentaries that I'm really looking forward to sharing with you, then check out uh, patreon.com slash fatherroderick. You'll also get access, by the way, to a weekly podcast. And in 2020, that podcast is going to be way bigger and way better and way more personal than in, uh, in the previous year. So stay tuned and thanks to all the patrons that are already helping me out. Do you know what's going on? This is what's happening in your world. They said Catholics rule. We got Boston, South America, the good part of Ireland, and we're making serious inroads in Mozambique, baby. You've taken your first step into a larger world. I was so happy that I took some time off, uh, some extended time off from podcasting, from media production to really calm down after the busy, busy uh, Christmas season. And uh, I still had to do a lot of things being a priest in a parish, as you can imagine. But I also took a lot of rest. Now, that also meant that I couldn't or didn't want to record any podcasts. But I was really grateful that you were patient because I already knew that uh, if I would come back to the microphone, it would be uh, a different me. It would be an improved version of Father Roderick with new decisions and a clearer vision of what I want to do uh, in the media. And this show is an example of that. A more focus, better quality, better preparation. <laughs> I hope that it works out. Um, it's also the time of year that uh, I try to put into practice my uh, New Year's resolutions. Um, one of the most important ones for me is to uh, work on my health, both spiritual and physical. So I have a much more uh, consistent prayer life, at least so far so good, like all you know intentions, like all resolutions. Uh, but I really try to uh, create more habits, more times during the day where I just sit and pray and read. 
Um, another uh, New Year's resolution for me was to actually read way more. I'll talk about that a little bit later in this show. And uh, to start training for my next marathon. I'm going to run a marathon on my birthday, on the 5th of April, in the city of Rotterdam. I ha have done this marathon uh, several times in the past. The only thing that I did not notice was that, well, April 5th is just around the corner. Normally, to prepare for a marathon, it takes about 18 weeks if you follow uh, the current schedules. And I just started to follow that schedule with only 12 weeks left on the calendar. So I'm very happy that during the winter break, I put together my... Um, uh, my, my, what is it? The the uh, the walking machine? How do you call that? Um, the treadmill, <laughs> the walking machine. Uh, that so I had disassembled a treadmill that was in my old rectory. I reassembled it in the attic of my new rectory, and uh, and so I've been already trying it out and running quite a bit. Uh, so I hope that with twelve weeks, it's going to be a bit tricky, but I think that 12 weeks will be enough to get ready for that marathon in Rotterdam. And then finally, I'm also trying to lose some weight. Like a lot of you, I have been, uh, there has been more Father Roderick after the Christmas celebrations than there was before. Well, I need to uh, get rid of that extra weight, mostly because I think it will help me also run. And one of the things that I've uh, uh, been implementing quite successfully since the beginning of this year is intermittent fasting. And so uh, for most of the week, I will only eat once per day, uh, starting at six o'clock in the evening. Uh, that's where I eat all my calories, about 1500 calories, because I'm trying to lose some weight. Um, and the rest of the day I'm fasting. And that sounds really uh, impossible. And when I heard other people doing intermittent fasting, I was like, wow, I don't think I could ever do that. When actually, it is super simple. Uh, it is just a matter of of getting used to it. But most of the time, like today, I'm I'm not fasting. Uh, but yesterday, I did intermittent, intermittent fasting. And I don't feel a difference. Actually, when I do eat during the day, I have these dips in my blood sugar... Uh, um, or spikes, I don't know how that works. But anyway, I get super sleepy afterwards. And and that's because of all the carbs, etc., that my body is uh, trying to process. And so um, this intermittent fasting has helped me to both stay below my, uh, my usual calorie intake, but it also gives me so much more energy during the day. So I'm even training for that marathon uh, while fasting, while being in a state of mild ketosis. And, uh, and I've never felt better. Well, maybe I have felt better, but it's been a while. <laughs> so I really, really like this uh, these, these New Year's resolutions. So far, so good. And I'm also protecting them. I'm really investing in um, the way I schedule my appointments, the choices that I make, because I do want to guarantee what I consider to be pillars in my life in for this year. And uh, having time to pray, having time to work out, uh, looking at what I eat, it's all very essential for the future. Let's talk about movies and TV shows. How do you not like movies? They're predictable. Like, the guy gets the girl and that kid sees dead people and Darth Vader is Luke's father. Not liking movies is like not liking puppies. They're fine. I just get bored and never make it to the end. You know, you need a movie education. You need a movication. Now I'm going to give it to you.
Today I would like to share with you my review of the very popular first season of The Witcher on Netflix. Spoiler-free in case you'd like to check it out. Uh, there are some things I love, there are some aspects that I'm very critical of, and some things that I'm hoping that they'll develop in future seasons. I've heard tales of your kind, Witcher. You're a mutant. Created by magic. Roaming the continent. We don't want your kind here. Hunting monsters. For a price. I thought you'd have fangs or horns or something. I had them filed down. <laughs> the first thing that I was very impressed with in the series is the world building. This is a believable fantasy world that I think most of all convinces because of the beautiful locations where this was filmed. Of course, a lot of it contains special effects and sets that were built inside a studio, but there is also a lot of the action that takes place in Europe. And they went to beautiful places. There are some castles that you will see in Austria, real castles. They also went to Poland, much to the delight, of course, of the Polish fans of this author who is in Poland at least considered to be, let's say, the Polish Tolkien, and they went to Spain for some of the landscapes. Now, what you see in the series is often modified, at least color corrected, so oftentimes there will be kind of this brownish color added to the to the original footage that was shot in these various countries. And, and of course, a lot of the vistas are enhanced with graphic effects like, you know, uh, mountains and uh, extra parts of castles that you see. But a lot of the of the settings feel real because it was filmed in real locations. I think this is also very good for tourism. And it's one of the things that some people love to do when they are on vacation in Europe is to go and visit these places. Well, with The Witcher, you can. The second thing that I noticed and appreciated about this series is that it is not only based on classic fantasy tropes, but it's also based partially on Eastern European mythology and old stories of the past. And so it has a lot of content that feels familiar because, well, I'm familiar with fantasy works and movies and books. But there are also some very surprising elements, both in, let's say, the monsters, the, the stories that are told, but also sometimes in the characters that you meet and their behavior. It, it, it is is this kind of this sense that there is this more Northern European or Eastern European influence on the story that makes it, for me as a European viewer at least, very, very compelling. Don't judge me. They say witches can't feel human emotion. What do you believe in? Break the evil is evil. Break the Lesser. Break the Greater. Middling. It's all the same. What I like about the character of the Witcher even though uh, it's definitely not a kind of lifestyle that would appeal to me. He's not presented as a, as a hero per se. He's definitely the main protagonist of the series. But he's, he's weird and he is foreign enough to create a bit of a distance so you can reflect on his, uh, on his actions and his moral choices. But there is definitely a morality to The Witcher. 
even though, you know, he kills, he kills people, he kills monsters, but he's not an assassin. He doesn't kill just out of vengeance. It's mostly in self-defense or to defend other people that are entrusted to him. And even though his lifestyle contains a lot of things that I, as a priest, would say are quite immoral, um, he still has his, his own code, his moral code that he adheres to. And oftentimes he will take decisions um, that surprise you because of the violent nature of the story. And wow, there's a lot of violence in this TV series. Um, but sometimes he will do something that you don't expect just because he wants to protect people. He is willing to sacrifice himself for others. And that is something that I appreciate in the story. The fourth thing that I noticed while watching this series is it... It was presented at first as kind of a new Game of Thrones-like, Lord of the Rings-like series. And yet the TV series, especially in the first few episodes, feels kind of small. And I think this is uh, partially because the sets that they built, the, in the studio sets that they built, are very small. This is... Uh, this series had a, a quite a, a considerable budget, but definitely not the 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 incredible amount of money that was thrown uh, to into each episode of uh, Game of Thrones, for instance, or in the Lord of the Rings movies. So sometimes you can you can tell that they were a little bit limited in. Uh, their set building. There are also a couple of interior sets that look a little bit cheap, not entirely convincing. And these sets are, are used multiple time, times throughout the stories. Maybe they even picked some of the, the, the stories from the existing novels so that they could reuse sets. And, well, I noticed at least. Um, there was sometimes not enough variety, I think, in the settings. The, also, the other reason that it feels sometimes a little bit small is uh, through the cinematography, the way they use the camera. It's uh, a lot of close-ups. They stay close to the action. Um, maybe they didn't have that many extras walking around, so they had to kind of bring the camera very close to the action. And so sometimes it feels a bit, I don't know, a, a bit closed up. And it's thanks to the exterior uh, footage, the, the, the footage that was filmed in various beautiful parts of Europe, that it, it starts to breathe. But the, there is no middle ground. It's either huge and massive environments or it's these smaller internal sets uh, that recur uh, in a number of these episodes. But I guess they just did what they could with the uh, amount of money that they had. And so for a first season, it's really good. However, I hope that for season two now that The Witcher has been quite a success for Netflix and a lot of people have watched it, that they will get a bigger budget. Kind of similar to what I hope for The Mandalorian where uh, the, they also had to, I think, deliberately stay small so they could keep within their budget and had to use a lot of uh, computer wizardry to make it feel like Star Wars and kind of open it up, but still you can see it in some of those scenes, it, it stays very small. I hope that for the second season of The Mandalorian, just as much for The Witcher, they will have a bigger budget now that it's proven to be successful and the story can amplify its, its scope. Princess Cirilla is your destiny. Uh, number five, 
The series is also very confusing. It is compelling, and I kept watching, but there were multiple moments where either at the beginning of the episode or in the middle of an episode, I was like, well, wait a minute, hold on. Is, so is this taking place before what we saw in the previous episode? Or where are they now? And they, it just hops around in time and also in locations. There are also flashbacks and dreams that sometimes are not clearly identified as such. And so there are multiple head-scratching moment, moments in this series where I had to go and read up on it. And that's something that I don't think you should need to do as a viewer. I don't like to do homework when I'm just watching a series to enjoy it. So... The timeline is confusing. It also doesn't really help that uh, it well, it doesn't really presuppose the novels, but it it leans more heavily on the novels than it does on the game. And for someone who has played the video games, this is a bit disconcerting because the video game, of course, uh, because you are playing The Witcher, is always linear time wise. It it sticks to one time frame, it doesn't hop, you know, 10 years forward. It does have some, you know, uh, CGI uh, scenes that will explain, you know, certain important elements. And then, but once you're playing the game, it sticks with the timeline. This series doesn't, and it is sometimes really, really confusing. Um, there is one tool that has helped me uh, after seeing an episode to kind of figure out what was happening and where they were, and that is a beautifully done interactive map that you can find on the website of the TV series. So if you Google that, it is pretty amazing what they did. I can't help but thinking, well, maybe they felt obliged to create this beautiful interactive map because maybe their test audiences couldn't figure it out either. I think the more you know about the world, maybe the more you've played the video games and you're already familiar with kind of the basic characters and the basic storylines, and especially if you've read the novels, that may be a, a, a lot of help deciphering what happens in this first season. I also think that in season two, since we're already a bit more familiar with the world and with the story and with the history of characters like uh, The Witcher, it'll probably, hopefully, be a bit easier to follow. And I was actually quite surprised that the series was so successful and that even though there were, there were some uh, critics that uh, pointed this out, but it didn't uh, hold people back uh, from watching this series. It didn't bother the success of the series, which I think is uh, also witnesses um, is, a, is a witness of, of the quality of the overall effort to bring these stories to life on the small screen. Um, the series does also from time to time look a little bit cheap. There are some special effects that are not entirely convincing. Um, and as I've already mentioned, the sets, there's this one set that takes place inside a castle and it's got these LED light stripes on the floor and it just looks like something out of a mall. And it does not work at all in this kind of medieval fantasy setting that they're trying to create. So I don't know what they were thinking, uh, but that, that set design was just plain wrong. And another thing that feels a little bit cheap is that they go a bit over the top in the color correction. So they try to make it super dark or very moody. And so they add uh, these what they call LUDs to the footage. So it, it, it will give it a very strong orangey-brown tint. But the thing is, you see 
forest in the background, and you can clearly tell that it, this was filmed in the summertime, and yet all these these trees are are brown, and it just creates a disconnect. It's like I'm not looking at real footage, and so it makes it look a, a bit fake. Number seven, what I appreciated about the first season on Netflix is that The Witcher has a number of very compelling characters, very intriguing. You first get to know them and you think that they correspond to certain tropes from the world of fantasy, but then they show deeper layers or they they change their behavior. They make very strange decisions sometimes. And I like that. I like that... uh, this is not a series that you get after one or two episodes. The more you watch, the more you think, well, wait a minute, this is totally different from what I expected this to be, or this character does not behave uh, in, in, in the classic way. And that makes it fascinating to watch. And number eight, one of the characters that I want to highlight and that is very funny and intriguing is the, the bard, uh, Dandelion or Dandelion. Um, he's fantastic. It's such a he already existed in the games and also in the in the novels. Um, but here he takes the role of a travel companion, of a also a sidekick to the Witcher. Um, he's not as present in every episode as I would have loved. Uh, there are episodes where he's almost completely absent. But when he's there, he is great. There's a lot of humor, and he also adds. Uh, something very, I don't know, a a certain modern sensibility to the story. Um, So he sings songs about the exploits of the Witcher. But the songs, when you listen to the songs, you're like, whoa, that that sounds like modern modern music, modern folk music. And also his humor and his uh, wittiness feels very much... 2020 and not medieval at all. Uh, but it, it, it kind of works. It's almost like not breaking the fourth barrier, but it's almost like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Hey, we know that you are watching and you know that this is fantasy, but that, that this is also modern fantasy. So uh, I don't know exactly why it works, but it does work. And it, he is already one of my favorite characters. But I can also tell there's more to this bard than meets the eye. And we don't really get to know him that well in this season. So what I hope for season two is that we get to see much more of the motivations, the background, and the character development of Dandelion, the bard. Another character, number nine, that I want to mention here is the very intriguing character of Yennefer. Yennefer, imagine the most powerful woman in the world. Do you have what it takes? She is, with The Witcher, uh, the second most important character in the series. And she is frightening in many ways. She, When we first meet her, she has a very deformed face and body. Um, but she is still chosen or elected or, I don't know, it's her destiny to become a very powerful witch, to, to master magic. But then she grabs hold of this power to change everything that she thought that she believed was wrong with her life and wrong with her destiny. And she is willing to sacrifice uh, almost everything to achieve what she in her mind sees as, as the perfect version of herself. 
The reason that I find this very intriguing is that this corresponds to an ongoing discussion in our modern society about identity. Um, you could even connect this with the whole discussion about gender and is, is gender something that is a given or is it something that you choose? As you can imagine, the Catholic Church has some very strong opinions about this. We'll go too far to, to discuss them right here. But, but I do appreciate that this series is trying to connect to something that is very much in the public debate right now. Who are you truly? And is the, the dreams that we have about the, being able to create ourselves, to create our identity, can that also damage ourselves? Because sometimes if life progresses, you will discover that, well, maybe the things that I wanted to be when I was younger um, and that I sacrificed so much for, maybe that wasn't who I truly am. And maybe there is something that is much more valuable than being beautiful, uh, being successful and having power. And in the storyline of Jennifer, I won't spoil it too much, but there is something that she discovers in the second half of the series that will turn around all the decisions that she took uh, in the first few episodes. And um, she is not dealing with it very well. She makes a lot of decisions that I think are morally wrong, are very damaging to herself and to the people around her. But you can see the haunted nature of, of, the, of those deeper questions in her. Who am I truly? Who am I called to be? What is going to be my legacy? And I did not expect that at all in the first few episodes. At first I was like, oh, I'm not sure about this character. But now at the end of this episode, of this, this first season, I'm thinking she's one of the strongest elements of, of this series. And I think there is a lot of potential to develop in her story in season two and maybe future seasons. Then a very strong point of criticism and also a word of warning for those of you that haven't seen the series yet. This series contains a lot of very graphic content, both in terms of violence, but also in terms of nudity. And uh, I think in both cases, uh, it go, it's over the top and it damages, I think, the story. It is clearly an attempt to uh, to try to mimic what maybe the producers or maybe Netflix thought would make this a success because let's just do what Game of Thrones does and then people will will also uh, like our series. Well, you know, the world of The Witcher and the story of The Witcher is good enough, is convincing enough uh, to not need this kind of graphic content. You can slay monsters and, uh, and, and uh, zombies without, you know, the guts flying in, in your face. Um, it's very bloody. It's very gruesome. It's just, you know, very flat, you know, gore. I've never been a fan of gore. And I think it's, it's, a, it's kind of tasteless. And the same is true for all the nudity, all the, the nude scenes. And there's a lot of, you know, very explicit frontal nudity in, uh, in this series. And, uh, but it doesn't really serve a function. I have the same criticism towards the games. There is, uh, in the games, there is also a lot of nudity, a lot of explicit content. The difference between the television series and the games is in the games, you have a choice. 
you can either engage in in these acts or not. And so uh, in that respect, you are the one who can you can tell your own story. You can be your own kind of witcher. And so it's not forced upon you. Whereas in uh, the television series, it's very much ingrained in, in almost every episode and there is no escape to it. So this is not a series for younger people. And if you have, uh, you know, a high sensibility for this kind of stuff, uh, be warned. This this is very graphic, and the, and also even in the in the words in the kind of the uh, vocabulary. Well, it's not the kind of stuff you would hear in church. I will leave it at that. In conclusion, despite my criticism of uh, some of the flaws of this series very compelling TV, uh, high-quality story, uh, great world-building, and characters that show a lot of storytelling promise for future seasons. So again, be warned, this is not for younger audiences. This may not be to everyone's taste, but it is still quite an achievement, and I'm not surprised that this was a success. It is time to visit the Peculiar Bunch. <laughs> Catholics rock! In this segment of the show, I try to explain things that are happening in the world of the Catholic Church and its tradition, things that you may not get from the outside perspective. Catholics can be a peculiar bunch. No meat on Friday. No meat? What do they eat? Light bulbs? And today, as a bit of an insider, I want to shed some light on uh, maybe something you've seen in the news, this controversy about this book written by a cardinal and a former pope. Man! You guys got more crazy rules than Blockbuster Video. So what was the situation? Um, just this, this past week, we were surprised by the announcement uh, that a book would appear that was co-written by, uh, on the one hand, Cardinal Sarah, who is at the head of the liturgy uh, department, you could say, of the Vatican, and uh, the emeritus pope, Pope Benedict Sixteen. It was no longer a pope. There's only one pope in the Catholic Church, and it's Pope Francis. But uh, as you know, Pope Benedict stepped back a couple of years ago and uh, lives in the backyard of the Vatican. And when he stepped back, he uh, promised that he would not interfere with uh, the matters of the Church um, because it just, well, that's not done. Um, there's only one pope, and uh, knowing that he his words carry a lot of weight, having been been at the head of the Catholic Church for so many years, um, he vowed that he would lead a life in silence and meditation. Well, it turns out that in reality that was a little bit more tricky to do because people kept visiting him and uh, he kept answering questions. And so uh, his thoughts and words uh, were, were from time to time in the media. And But normally that was all, uh, I think, in very har harmonious coordination with uh, the Vatican and with Pope Francis. And you have to realize that these two popes are not that different, maybe in temperament, but certainly not in what they believe. Um, so if you've seen the movie about the two popes on Netflix, um, a lot of the dialogue, most of the dialogue is fiction. Um, and the way they portray, especially Pope Benedict, is, I think, very far from the real Pope Benedict. And I, 
I think I can say something authoritative about that because I've known Pope Benedict and I've, I've, I've seen him up close. I've met him several times and I've read a lot of what he wrote. And I don't think that the movie does justice to, to him and to his character. But, hey, it's storytelling, it's fiction, so that's okay. But the thing is, um, it, it, what happened this past week was in a certain way a shock to the system because he wrote... Uh, he co-wrote, according to what we heard in the news, this book about celibacy, uh, priestly celibacy. Um, together with this Cardinal Sara, who has a certain reputation in uh, in Catholic circles, he's not one of the more progressive uh, uh, cardinals, let's put it that way, um, someone who's very concerned about the situation of the church, especially in the Western world. If there's one uh, ongoing theme that we see in his writings and also in his preaching, because he travels a lot, it is that he is uh, always very concerned that the church will disappear, that, that, that we are living in a catastrophic time and there is only one way to, to change the tide and that is to return to the, to the eternal values of the Catholic Church, uh, celibacy, priestly celibacy being one of those. And so... Um, uh, the book itself is uh, basically a, um, a defense of priestly celibacy with uh, a, a, a contribution by, by Benedict XVI, and the majority of the book is written by uh, Cardinal Sarah and also reflects his, you know, his style, his uh, theological style in that. The reason that it caused so much upheaval was that it seemed at first that Pope Benedict was interfering with a policy that was in the making uh, in well the at the writing table of Pope Francis because as you can remember last year we had the uh, synod uh, about the Amazon and the great environmental and social problems that that part of the world struggles with. And the synod was about a lot of things, uh, most of which we haven't really seen in the Western media that were reporting on this, um, but the issues that are at stake there are, uh, not only have an impact on that particular region, but also on the entire world, especially the environmental problems of that region and the destruction of nature there. But uh, one of the issues that were discussed was how do we solve the problem of uh, great portions of the Catholics in that remote region, not having access to the sacraments anymore because, simply, uh, there are not enough priests that are able to join them. And because there are so few priests, uh, would it be an idea, and it's all, the, the Synod is basically a, a think tank, right, for the Pope. It's ultimately the Pope who will uh, think about this and come to conclusions and stipulate what needs to be done. But anyway, one of the suggestions was, what if we could make an exception to the, the overall rule of uh, celibacy for priests in the Roman Catholic Church by allowing uh, married men who have lived uh, a, a, a good life and have a good reputation uh, no longer have... Uh, uh, responsibilities for uh, uh, their family because the, the children have already grown up. So, uh, somewhat older men. Why don't we allow them to uh, to become priests without that rule of celibacy? So, by staying married. This was not something new, by the way. It was Pope Benedict himself who allowed Anglican priests 
to uh, come to the Catholic Church. This was around the time that the, the Anglican Church voted to allow women to enter the priesthood. And a number of priests, I think more than 100, decided to uh, rejoin the, the Roman Catholic Church. And they were allowed to stay uh, priests and to work as priests in parishes, despite the fact that they were married. And so it was Pope Benedict who made that exception. Now, the question around the Synod for the Amazon was, well, maybe this is also uh, a situation where we formulate an exception. Again, it was not like, let's abolish celibacy, but let's make an exception that could be uh, uh, very helpful in solving a huge pastoral problem. I mean, if you're a Catholic there and you can only go to Mass once a year, or what if you want to go to confession and you can't because there's no priest and you, you live in the state of mortal sin? I mean, that's a real danger to the well-being and to the salvation of, of those Catholics there. So to me, that made sense to, to think about that. But especially uh, a group of, of, of Catholics, or you could, I, I hesitate to use the word faction because that sounds very political, and of course, as you know, the, the church is not a political organization, even though, of course, there are politics, there are church politics. But there was a, let's say, a group of people that were very concerned that if, if there would be another uh, exception to the overall rule of celibacy, that, that would set a precedent, and then that's that's kind of the part of the of being a, a worldwide church, a global church. Then maybe other regions would also start to uh, clamor for the the uh, new exceptions to the rule of celibacy, and that would ultimately lead to the destruction of the priesthood as we know it. So a lot of the of what Cardinal Sarah wrote in that book was. Uh, well, it's trying to avoid that. It's, it's trying to uh, value and to uh, bring forth the value of celibacy. And and he develops a certain theology. I've read a few uh, ex excerpts. I'm not always in agreement as a theologian because sometimes, it, well, it's not always the, the... This is a theological reflection on the practice of the Catholic Church. Uh, but sometimes I feel that the book is going beyond what the Church has said so far about celibacy and about the necessity of, of a celibate life for, uh, for priests. But anyway, uh, the, the, what made this so contentious is that uh, uh, Cardinal Sarah, when he met Pope Benedict last year, asked Pope Benedict if he would like to contribute to that book. And Pope Benedict, or Benedict, I should say, emeritus pope, uh, Benedict said, well, I've actually already been writing about this in the summer. Uh, and he wrote about seven pages about priesthood in the Old Testament, priesthood in the New Testament, and how that relates to celibacy. One of the points that he makes is in the middle of his, uh, his, his contribution, which was published in German just the other day, so I've been able to read it, is that he says, well, already in the Old Testament, um, uh, abstention from from uh, sexual relationships was required for priests when they would worship. But that only happened a couple of times per year. So that was still compatible with the married life. And, and then he says later on, the church uh, adopted a practice of, of, of celebrating a daily Eucharist, uh, or daily worshiping. And so from just a rule uh, that priests had to live celibate celibate lives it became almost an ontological requirement because you can't have sexual relationships and celebrate mass every day that's basically the gist of what he says there it's it's only a very small part of of these seven pages 
but it's still there. I think that goes definitely beyond anything that that the magisterium and the church has has written um, before. And I'm not sure that that everyone would agree with that. Uh, lots of very orthodox theologians would say, well, that is maybe a little bit uh, too, too quick. <laughs> Let's not put it that way. But anyway, it's not a problem because this is Pope Benedict writing a meditation. This, he himself says this is even not, not even a theological uh, article that I've written. These are some thoughts that I've written down. So, you know, in that respect... It's an interesting contribution to the overall discussion about the value of celibacy and its link to the priesthood, but it's it's certainly not canon law or or doctrine or anything. That is not uh, to uh, 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 to th that is the job of of the current pope. Well, the thing is, because Pope Francis was still thinking and is still writing this exhortation um, as a result, or after having listened to all the. Uh, people that spoke at the uh, synod about the Amazon, this almost seemed like the previous pope interfering with the discussion or with the debate and basically saying, together with Cardinal Sarah, well, this is, this is you know, it's ontological, so you can't uh, abolish uh, celibacy. You can't not make any exceptions to it. That is definitely what Cardinal Sarah says. He says if we start to allow more of these exceptions, it's a catastrophe for the priesthood. Very, very strong words coming, I think, from a very concerned heart. But um, it is definitely, in the way it was presented, an interference that is not fitting for an emeritus pope turns out that that was not really Pope Benedict's fault. This was, I think, coming from the people around Cardinal Sarah that thought, well, hey, if we put those two photos on the cover and we say, Benedict sixteen, Cardinal Sarah, that will make people notice this book. If it had just been Cardinal Sarah, he's written a lot of books in the past, but it doesn't have the same weight as having the photo and the name of Benedict XVI on the cover. And that is exactly the problem because uh, the um, uh, Archbishop Ganswine, who takes care of Pope Benedict, spoke with Pope Benedict. Uh, after all, the outrage in the media and also in, in, in the Vatican and in, in, in Catholic circles, like, well, this, this cannot, you know, we don't need, we don't want an emeritus Pope to interfere with current policy that should be formulated by the only pope, and that is currently Pope Francis. So, uh, after that whole uh, thing exploded in the, in the press, uh, Benedict XVI told Ganswine, you have to contact Sarah, you have to contact the editor, and I want my name to be removed from the cover. I don't want my photo on the cover, and I certainly don't want to be pitched as the co-author, because my contribution is just seven pages. And the rest of the book is written by Sarah. And, and so he actually, I mean, that's, that's a big intervention. <laughs> and it shows, I think, that, that Pope Benedict realizes or now realizes the gravity uh, of the mistake uh, that they made. Perhaps not him, but definitely the people surrounding Sarah. That the way in which this book was pitched at least suggests that the previous pope is interfering with his successor. And that is something that I know for sure, that Pope Benedict would never want. 
However, the book was already printed. And so in France, you can still buy the book as is with the two photos and the two names on the cover. And it's only when there's going to be a reprint that the name will be removed. It's a very unfortunate uh, thing, I think, both because, well, this, uh, they should have known better, I think, at least the people around Pope Benedict should have prevented this from happening, uh, but also because it, it takes away the focus on, on the real topic, uh, a positive discussion and reflection on the value of celibacy, and instead it becomes this, this, this battle between the two popes reaffirming already the kind of uh, stereotypical uh, presentation of those two popes in, in the movie on Netflix. Well, this is only strengthening that opposition between these two men, which I think doesn't correspond to the truth. And I think both would, uh, both popes would, uh, would, would agree uh, by saying that, well, we are in this continuity of doctrine. And yes, there are difference of character and difference of emphasis, perhaps, but we believe in the same faith and the same tradition. That's all I'm going to say about it. I've already been talking about it too long. Let's move over to the world of books. When did you become an expert in thermonuclear astrophysics? Last night. The packet. The extraction theory papers. Am I the only one who did the reading? Like many of you, I have an account on Goodreads, and that means that I get notified of what my friends are reading. And at the beginning of this year, I got a number of notifications from friends that said, hey, I'm going to do this book challenge where I'm going to read, I don't know, 15 books this year, or I'm going to read at least one book every month, which, in my opinion, was already very ambitious. And then I saw someone who said, I'm going to read one book per week, so I'm going to read 52 books. And my first reaction was... That's impossible. And then I thought, well, well, maybe what if it's not? And the first reaction that I got from friends to which I pitched this idea, well, hey, I'd like to read 52 books this year, uh, was, well, why should you? I mean, that, that means that you have to rush through these books or skim through the pages, whereas books are meant to be enjoyed and savored. Why would you uh, engage in this kind of literary gluttony? Well... The reason that I want to read 52 books this year or more is that I loved reading and this is what I did when I was a kid. When I was in primary school, I would go to the library every single day except on Sunday when the library was closed and I would read either there or I would take books home and sometimes I would read throughout the night. My parents hated me for that. <laughs> but I would read until, I don't know, four o'clock in the morning because I just couldn't stop reading. The reason that I love reading so much is that it helped me. I'm uh, usually very easily stressed. It helped me to, to relax, to step away from uh, everything that's urgent and everything that stresses me out. And it puts me in, 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 the, in the lives of people that have totally different priorities, uh, people that are saving the universe or the galaxy. And that reminds me that there is more to this life than just the stuff that is in your, on your calendar and the obligations or the homework at school. And so I love to read fantasy books. I've read so much Tolkien, uh, science fiction, basically anything, Roald Dahl, anything that could bring me to a world where 
my imagination was without limits. Another thing that I love about reading is that I'm in control of what this world looks like and what these people in the in the book looks like look like. And in that respect, it's a much more active uh, uh, way of consuming stories than watching TV or playing video games or even you know VR experiences because all those newer media they present me with the world. Uh, that someone else came up with. Whereas when I read a book, I can paint that world the way I see it in my mind's eye, and I love that. So reading, I know, is good for me, and it is, in that respect, a bit similar to praying or meditation or going for a long walk. It, it winds you down, and it opens up your soul and your imagination. And I can already tell that my newfound you know, rhythm of reading one book per week has that effect on me. I don't want to go back to the time that I was just watching TV. Here are some of my personal tips. The first one is set a goal. Uh, pick something that you think you can realize and don't be too careful. It's If you set a goal, if it's a little bit above what you think you can do, it will motivate you to work harder. If I want to run a marathon, I'm not going to train for a half marathon, right? I'm going to train for a marathon and that will motivate me, incentivize me to do a lot of running and a lot of training and take it very seriously. So I set myself a goal of reading 100 pages per day. Now, why 100? Because I measured my reading speed. There are some tools that you can find, some apps that will do that. And so I, I, it's like, so if I have two hours or two and a half hours that I can find throughout the day to read, um, how many pages can I, in ideal situations, can I read? Well, it turns out for me, that's 100 pages per day. So that's what I set as a goal. And um, that is a lot. And it will allow me to, if I read shorter books, to read more than one book per week. The reason that I picked 100 pages is that I want to read the entire Wheel of Time series, which is, I think, more than 12 books. And every book is about 600 pages. So I was like, well, if I want to finish this, uh, 100 pages per day, that will allow me to read more books than just a Wheel of Time series. So that's why it's pretty high for me. The second tip that I have is, and that works really well for me, pick a time to read that is sacred. Um, maybe not one specific moment of the day. Uh, not everyone has the kind of life where they can set apart two or three hours to read. But if you can't do it in one session, then try to find more moments during the day, two or three sessions, one early in the morning when, I don't know, you're, you're, you've just woken up but you don't want to get out of bed yet. Uh, read something there. Read during your lunch breaks. Perhaps even do a combination of uh, uh, written books or books on uh, electronic books and and audio books, especially on the Kindle. You can synchronize those two. So you could, when when you're in the car, you're in a commute, you can read to the, you can listen to the story, and then you can you can read uh, on paper, which of course is much faster when you get back home. I usually my sacred time is when I get back home from work around 5 or 5.15. The first thing I do is I set my, put myself, pour myself a cup of tea and I, uh, I sit in the main living room. I turn down all my devices and I read until I get hungry. And, uh, but I could also sometimes 
I have to do some homework or I have to, uh, I don't know, clean the kitchen. Um, then I will read uh, an, another hour just before I go to bed. And I sacrifice some of my TV and video game time to in favor of reading uh, those 100 pages. My third tip, I've already mentioned it, is to block out all distractions. Don't fall for the temptation to check your email or your Facebook or Instagram. Put your phone away. Turn it off. Put it on, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, in-flight uh, uh, mode. Um, and don't try to listen to other stuff to put the radio in the background or turn on the TV. That will all distract you. What you want to have is laser focus on the book. And the less distraction there is, the better, the more, the faster you're going to read. And the more you will be immersed in the story itself. So block out all of those distractions. For me, that is a reason to always read on my Kindle and not on my iPad or on my phone. Because the mobile devices... Once they're hooked up to the internet, they keep, you know, blinking and, and distracting me with all sorts of notifications. When I read a book, it's my Kindle and my Kindle alone. And that device is so boring and so slow that there's nothing on that device that distracts me. My fourth tip is um, don't, don't hesitate to apply some of the speed reading techniques that you can learn about uh, on, on YouTube or in blogs. However... One caveat, a lot of those speed reading techniques don't work. Um, people that um, are boasting, uh, you know, we read four or 500 pages a day, um, or they, they tell you that they can read at incredible superhuman speeds. What they're actually doing is skimming. They don't remember everything that's on the page. So, uh, but there are also some elements in those speed reading techniques that you can apply and won't... Uh, won't reduce your, your reading to skimming pages. One thing that really helped me was to set very large margins on my Kindle. So there's a lot of white room on the page. The reason being that the less my eye has to move back and forth, the more I can just grasp multiple sets of words at once. Now, the way that we read um, is we don't read word by word. There's this one... Uh, uh, app that you that you can have. I think even that Amazon implemented it on some of their uh, Kindle Fire devices, where it will show you one word after another very very rapidly in the center of the screen. The idea being, well, hey, if you don't have to move your eyes, then your brain will be able to go so much faster through these words. The thing is, that doesn't really work that well because when you're reading, when you're a fast reader, you don't read all the words. You pick the words that have the most meaning. And the more experience you have in reading, the more your brain will be able to select words that really matter. And you just, your mind fills in the blanks. It's amazing to see how that works. It's actually like our vision. When we, when we see something, the only thing that we really see very well is the center of our vision. And the rest is extremely blurry. Just try it out. Look at the words and then try to read something on a book that you keep here. You won't be able to see it because it's all blurry. However, your mind tells you that everything around you is, is in focus, but it's not. Uh, we, our, our brain is very good at filling in the blanks. And that's the same. Uh, that's also true when it comes to reading. 
the more you read, the faster you will grasp what the paragraph or the page is about, and your brain will fill in the blanks. And so what uh, one, of, one of the uh, techniques that I use uh, when I read l big books like, uh, like, for instance, The Wheel of Time, I do selective skimming. So there are pages where the story gets very dense and it's very important. Once that happens, I slow down. I was like, oh, there's something really important happening. But there are also a lot of events in these books that are, you know, I just go through it. And I kind of have a mental picture of what's happening. They're traveling through, I don't know, a landscape. And I don't really need to know all the little details of that particular part of the journey. I could if I wanted, but then reading that book would take me three or four weeks. Actually, the first book in the series, The Eye of the World, that took me almost a year to read because I was like savoring every single page. Um, but now that I know how this particular writer writes, I know that there's a lot that I can just skip through and it will still, I will read enough to paint this mental image. But once I get to the action, once I get to the important parts, that's where I slow down. So that's uh, uh, something I learned from speed reading. And then a final thing that I learned from speed reading is don't go back. There are sometimes you read a page and then you realize, well, hey, I actually, my mind was elsewhere. The, the temptation is to go back and reread it and to read it even slower. But what I've learned is that doesn't really help. What actually helps me to focus more is if I notice that my mind starts to, starts to drift, to read even faster. Because then my brain has to hold on to it. This is not something you can do for hours, of course. But the moment I notice that I get more distracted, I speed up my reading technique. And I certainly don't go back. But because nine in 10 times, if I miss something or it's like I was distracted, when you continue the story, things will fall into place and you will start remembering, oh, of course, oh, that's probably what happened. And so again, your brain will fill in the gaps. My fifth personal tip has to do with reading audiobooks or listening to audiobooks. Just as much as you can learn certain things from speed reading, you can also learn how to speed listen. And uh, this is not always possible, but uh, a lot of the apps that we use to listen to audiobooks uh, enable you to increase the listening speed. Now, this is something that also sometimes people apply to podcasting. If they want to, you know, they don't have much time, but they still want to check out a couple of their favorite podcasts, uh, they will just up the speed. Also, depending on how fast someone talks, you have very slow talkers where you can easily speed it up two times and you will still totally understand what they say. But you also have people that, like me, speak very rapidly and then maybe you cannot, uh, you know, do like two times reading or listening speed because it's too much. It's it's too much info too, too rapidly. But what I've noticed is that a lot of the audiobooks have a very kind of a, a, a normal reading pace, uh, which is almost the same for all audiobooks that I've listened to. What I've noticed is that you can also start to speed listen. And, and the trick to do that is to gradually up the speed. If you you can do an experiment where you listen to an audiobook and then you put the speed to twice the speed. And at first you're like, blah, 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 who can listen to this? Well, it's because the shock is too big. What I did is first, my first step was, let's speed it up to 1.25. 
And then I listen to a chapter like that. Like, well, almost no difference. And then I go back to one, just a regular speed. And I was like, wow, this is slow. And then I up it to 1.5 times the speed. And I listen to a chapter like that. And then I drop back to the original speed. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is so slow. And I could up it all the way to twice the speed. That's the maximum amount of, uh, uh, um, let's say, uh, acceleration that my my audio app allows. But I've heard that in, for Audible, you can go all the way up to three times the speed. You have to kind of pick and choose what works for you. It also depends on the type of book that you read. But for right now, I'm reading a trilogy that's a young adult uh, uh, novel series. And, well... Twice the speed, no problem whatsoever, but it cuts the amount of time uh, that I need to read those books in half. Instead of listening eight hours to an audiobook, I can read it in four hours. And on a Saturday, for instance, or when I go for a walk on Sunday, I can read an entire book. I can listen to an entire audiobook in just four hours. And uh, thanks to training my brain to speed up the listening speed. My sixth tip is if you ever drop the ball, if there is a day where just life ran with it and you couldn't find time at all to read, look for the first occasion to double your efforts. Don't think, and it's very similar to, let's say, trying to lose weight or training for a marathon or whatever sports. If you drop the ball, that's not a disaster. What would be really a shame is if you give up and you think, oh, well, I'll never make it. No, just go back. Focus again, try to find some extra time and catch up. So if I drop the ball now, and there have been days that I couldn't read or only a tiny little bit, just half an hour, well, the next day I try to skip something like, for instance, watching TV. And instead of that, I read an extra hour so that I still, on in, on, in total, I would have read 100 pages every day of that week. And it is the 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 almost a penalty of having to spend more time or reserve more time for catching up also am, uh, enhances the habit of reading every day because in the back of your mind is like well I cannot drop the ball because then tomorrow well I'll have to read twice as much my final tip number 7 is the most important one and that is read only what you love if you are reading a book and after two or three chapters, don't give up too soon. Sometimes the beginning of a book is a bit boring, but that, you know, gradually you'll get into it. But if after a number of chapters, you're like, well, I don't like this writing style. I don't like this story. I don't like these characters. Stop. Stop it immediately. Your time is way too precious to read things that you don't enjoy. Just put the book away and immediately start reading another book. The way I do this, if I start reading a book and I didn't like it that much, and I fell behind because of that. Say, for instance, I invested 100 pages on that book that I ultimately ended up not liking. I'm picking for that week, I'm picking a smaller book so, so that I can still meet my goal of reading one book that week. But instead of reading like an entire uh, a book of uh, The Wheel of Time, I'll just read, I don't know, a short novel of uh, 300 pages or something like that. So that in the end, I can still meet that goal of reading one book every week. And that wraps it up for this episode of my weekly show. I'm Father Roderick. And for my patrons, there is a second show, a second podcast that you get to download if you become a patron. So 
if you want to listen to that. It's going to be very personal. It's going to be about many other things that I didn't have time for in this show. Check it out on patreon.com slash fatheroderick.com.